Hey, good morning, Calvary Mountain View and uh, friends joining in with us. Uh, we're awfully glad to have you here today. We have a super full service. So uh, without any further ado, we're going to pray. We're going to jump in and we're just going to uh, worship the Lord this morning. So let's pray. So Father, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord. And we thank you again just for the opportunity that we can be here together, Lord, even distanced as we are. And Lord, we thank you for your spirit which unifies us, Lord, which, uh, which draws us in. Father, we thank you uh, most importantly, Lord, for your presence here with us this morning. We pray, Lord, that as we begin to worship you, Father, that this time would minister unto you, Lord, in the same way that it ministers unto us. We pray that it would be a blessing for you, Lord. We pray that uh, you would use this time, Lord, to prepare our hearts, Lord, to settle us down, Lord, to, uh, to hear from you this morning. Uh, we pray that you would inhabit the praises of your people. Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So go ahead and settle in and, uh, and worship the Lord together with us this morning.
church. It's Jordan Clark here. I'm going to read some verses out of the book of Ezra this morning, and hopefully you guys are still reading along with us in the year reading plan. And I think this will provide a nice overview of what was going on at the time and the Lord's goodness. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all the people 
may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shelethiel, and Jeshua the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers and the priests, and the Levites, and all who came from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from twenty years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And I uh, hope this encourages you this morning. Uh, this is coming, like it, the verses were saying, straight out of captivity from Babylon. And this king of Persia had uh, come and overthrown those guys. And then the Lord, whether he knew it or not, uh, put it on his heart to begin to rebuild uh, Jerusalem and lift up all of Judah. And it really points out that God is always with us. He never forsakes us even when we don't listen to him and have to use learn things the hard way um and i just pray that we have obedient hearts and that we put god first in our lives even when we're going through trying times like these days and uh, my prayer today is that the word that the lord has shared with pastor bill will speak to each and every one of us watching and i just want to have you guys have a great week bless you bye
Good morning, church family, and hello um, from our home. We are the Negrettis. This is Vinny and Susie, my brother Ryan, and I'm Kirsten, and we just wanted to um, just say happy Sunday. So over the last few weeks or months, um, we have been sheltered in place together, and it's been, it's been challenging, but God is good, and a verse that has really carried um, us through this time is in Psalm, Psalm 91, and it says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him I will trust. And He has proven over and over to be a trustworthy God who is a place that we can find shelter and rest in. Amen, amen. Looking forward to seeing you all soon again and for uh, everything to um, just be set in place. And the Lord knows the timing, so um, when it's time, uh, we'll see you there. And and thank you so much for having us do this introduction. We hope that you have a great rest of your Sunday, and we hope that you just enjoy fellowshipping with us virtually. Hi, church. We are so grateful that you're joining us again today. Uh, you guys are such a blessing to us, joining us here online, and just being surrounded by our church family. So welcome, and thank you for showing up each and every single week. We are continuing our Focus 2020 plan of reading through the Bible in one year via the Bible app. So we hope you're coming along um, on that journey with us. And then joining us each and every Wednesday night right here at 7 p.m. for our Regroup uh, live stream, where the pastors are teaching us through one of the chapters that we've read in the past week where we're able to just dive into uh, the word a little bit more and glean some more knowledge and understanding and just strengthening our relationship with the Lord and our understanding of the word. So we we'll hope you'll come back this Wednesday night right here at 7 p.m. As we continue to be in shelter in place, we have multiple ways for you to connect. We've started small groups for both men and women that meet at various days and times throughout the week. So we really hope that you can uh, Check those out, see if one of those will work for you, and just jump in at any time. It's just, just a great way to just genuinely be in fellowship with one another and be diving into God's Word um, as we just continue to seek Him and uh, His leading of our lives. So we'll hope that if you or a loved one have been impacted in any way during all of this, there is help for you, and we would love to come alongside you in any way, shape, or form. So please re reach out to others within the church. Um, email a pastor, talk to a pastor, email us at info at ccmv.org uh, so that we can try and meet your needs in, in whatever way possible. Even if it's just that you need prayer, we'd love to be praying for you. There's so much power and comfort in prayer, so please uh, reach out. And also just check out our, our prayer wall on our church website at ccmv.org. Uh, we have a, a prayer wall out there that you can go and actually place anonymous prayer requests or um, prayer requests that have been known and you can read what others have shared. So we just encourage you to just be a church that's praying for everyone and all of our people. So we know that giving is important to you. It is an act of worship unto the Lord to be given the opportunity to give freely back what God has freely given us. It is our way for us to express our gratitude and our reliance on God and God alone. So we have multiple ways for you to give. You can go to our new online platform at ccmv.org and schedule payments with multiple ways to make it reoccurring that best suits your needs. You can also use our Square Cash with giving at ccmv.org or Venmo with Calvary MV. Or you can always just get a good old-fashioned check in the mail 
um, and send it to our church office. So we are so happy that you are here today. Let's just pray for our service and our offering today unto the Lord. Father God, we are so grateful for our time of fellowship together, Lord. We're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful to just be here in your presence, Father. Uh, even if we can't be together in a church building, Lord, that we're all able to gather here online. We just ask, Father God, that you come into our hearts, Lord God, that you enlighten the eyes of our hearts of what you want to what you want to see, Lord, that we come to you with joyful hearts, Father God, that we delight in giving back to you what you have um, just provided unto us, Father God, that, um, that we really would just be a people who are wholly dependent on you in all areas of our life, Lord God, that we just wholly trust you in all of your ways. We just ask you to be with Pastor Bill as he delivers um, a message of your word, Lord God, and just give us ears to hear. Uh, what you want to teach us, Father God. We just, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are in our lives, Lord God. And we, we just praise you that we're able to gather here today. And just ask you to bless us as we go um, about our weeks, Father God. And uh, just give us a great time of worship and fellowship unto you today. I ask this in your name. Amen. Welcome, church. We're so glad that you're here today. We hope you enjoy Pastor Bill's message. Bye. Hey everybody, again, good to have you with us this morning. So good to have everybody, Kissy and Jordan, and of course the Negrettis, and, uh, and Hannah keeping us all up to date. Uh, it's great to have you on whatever platform you're joining us this morning, whether you're tuned in on Twitch, or watching us on Periscope, or on uh, Facebook, or YouTube, or right on the church website. Wherever you are, we've got all these different platforms that are just pushing the Word of God out. They're gathering the people of God together. And it's, uh, it's pretty exciting, I think. So um, happy Memorial Day, of course, uh, tomorrow. And, you know, it's a day that we set aside, of course, to remember and to reflect and to honor those who uh, have given uh, literally everything, you know, so that we can enjoy everything that we enjoy. And I think, I don't know about you, but for me, uh, it's especially significant this year to consider Memorial Day as we consider and as we really appreciate all of the freedoms uh, that, we, uh, that we hold so dear. And we, we appreciate those, I think, in an especially profound way this year in particular. So we thank you. Uh, we thank you to those who served and who have given everything. And we thank you in a way really that words can't do justice and yet, uh, and yet we try. So. Uh, quickly, also, uh, on the reopening of the church, uh, the restarting of our live church services, hopefully uh, you can check out the email that I sent out last night. If you don't get those emails, uh, drop us an email at info at ccmv.org, and we will add you to the list so you can stay up to date. That's going to be especially important in the coming weeks. Uh, of course, you know, uh, there's things that are happening which may uh, enable us to open up the church uh, sooner rather than later. But this week, of course, we're going to be looking for new guidance, perhaps, that's coming um, from the state and from our uh, local county authorities. Uh, those new plans that are going to help us to start to develop our plan um, for when it is that we can uh, open. So I want to just encourage everybody again, rest assured, we will get there soon but more importantly than getting there soon, we're going to get there safely. So uh, be praying for that, please. Uh, just continued prayer for wisdom 
uh, as we walk. And again, as I said in my, uh, in my note, our, our priority is to protect uh, both the health and the witness of our Calvary Chapel Mountain View family here within the community. So with all of that said, uh, grab your Bibles or turn on your Bibles or open up a new window for your Bible or whatever you need to do and turn to Acts chapter 15. We're going to look at about the first uh, 21 verses uh, this week. Uh, as you're turning there, of course, in the brief book of Jude, Jude, of course, who was the brother or the half-brother, if you will, of Jesus, uh, in the book of Jude, we're encouraged to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And it's this sense that we're, we have this responsibility as believers to defend the faith. Or uh, the word is really wrestle, to wrestle continuously for those essential and those foundational truths of the gospel that all true Christians hold in common. Um, what's ironic is that most people today they want to believe in the faith as they sort of make it up as they go along. They're not interested in the faith that, uh, you know, they're more interested in the faith that's in my heart rather than that faith once for all delivered to the saints. But our faith, you know, the Christian faith, the faith that we are seeing birthed in these pages, chapter after chapter here in the book of Acts, true biblical faith, that faith is not nearly so subjective because that faith comes to us from the heart of God directly and it is a faith that is worth contending for. And so as we continue this morning in Acts chapter 15, we're going to come to the first kind of a critical conflict of faith that the early church faced. The way they, we're going to see the way that they sought the heart of God. We're going to see the way they contended for the truth of God. And what we're going to see as well is that this very same critical conflict of faith is something that we as believers today are still wrestling with. So let's pray again just quickly and just ask the Lord really to bless his word uh, as we go there this morning. So Father, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you, Lord, for the way that you teach us. Lord, we pray that that teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here this morning. Uh, Lord, as Hannah prayed, we pray as well. Just give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to each one of us today, Lord, as, as the church corporately and as believers individually, Lord, and personally. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you remember when we last left off, we said that that first missionary journey was in the books. We've watched the Lord kind of fling the door open wide to the Gentiles with the gospel. We watched Paul and Barnabas planting these churches, the way that they ventured out from Antioch of Syria, first to the island of Cyprus, and then to that region of Asia Minor, or what was, is today pretty much modern-day Turkey. We saw them in Antioch, Pisidia, and then in Iconium, and Lystra, and Derbe. And then we saw them strengthen all of those same believers as they doubled back through those very same cities on their way back to Antioch of Syria, their sending church. And when we left them, they were rejoicing together. Luke had said in verse 27 of chapter 14, they were rejoicing in all that God had done with them. 
And it was this kind of picture-perfect end to this first venture for the gospel. Luke concludes verse 14. It says that they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And what a sweet time that must have been. The church there in Antioch thriving and growing and really continuing in what marked that church, which was the grace of God. And all of that was going great until we come now to chapter 15 and verse 1. It says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So if we can count on anything, it's the fact that where the gospel is thriving and wherever the kingdom is advancing, that the enemy will be opposing. And we've seen so far in just these early chapters of the book, the way that Satan wanted to stop the spread of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. First of all, remember through external opposition. We saw that initial, initial persecution starting right off in uh, chapter four with the, the arrest of some of the apostles. And then we watched some of that internal corruption that Satan tried to introduce into the church, the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. We saw the division that arose over those Greek widows in chapter 6. And now here, Satan is going to employ yet another extremely effective tactic with this dogmatic doctrinal dispute. Because now into this grace-based environment of the church at Antioch comes this group of these legalistic believers who had come from the area right there from the mother church back at Jerusalem in Judea. And these were Jewish Christians that we often refer to as Judaizers because they came into the congregation and taught that Gentiles could become Christians but only after they first became Jews. And then they submitted themselves to all of those Jewish rituals, including the rite of circumcision. Now understand, it was very difficult still for some of these very devout Jewish Christians to accept that Gentiles could be brought into the church and could be somehow equal members with the Jews. After all, it was one thing in their minds to accept kind of the occasional God-fearing Gentile, right? Those Gentiles who had already started to submit themselves to the teachings of the one true God. But it was quite another thing to welcome this huge wave of Gentiles who had no regard for the law. They had no interest in the law. They had no intention of keeping the law. And these Jewish men, after all, had been raised to respect and to really obey the law of Moses. They didn't yet understand that very delicate relationship between law and grace in the way that we now can understand it. Because understand, the books of Romans and Galatians and Hebrews, none of those had yet been written. And no doubt, imagine for them, when they heard of the reports of the ministry that Paul and Barnabas were doing amongst the Gentiles, when they heard especially the things that Paul was preaching, like when he declared, remember in Acts chapter 13, when he said in Antioch Pisidia, he said that by him or by Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from all things 
which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, this would have been heresy for them. Because they would instead say, well, yes, Jesus saves us, but he only saves us after we've done everything that we can do to keep that law of Moses. And what Paul was teaching was that a person could only be right with God on the basis of what Jesus had done, not on the basis of anything that they could do or bring to the table. And so passionate were these men for the defense of what they believed was their faith. They weren't content to keep their beliefs to themselves. They were compelled to try to persuade all of these other Christians. They came all the way to Antioch from Jerusalem. That would have been about 300 miles, probably a two-week walk in good weather with no problems. And they came all of that way to preach this message. And so in everything that we could say about these men, we can say that they were certainly sincere. And yet, of course, they were very sincerely wrong. And all of this was kind of this first frontal assault on the gospel of the grace of God, that true gospel of grace that teaches that it's Jesus finished the work on the cross. He did everything that was necessary for our salvation, and that the only thing that we as sinners need to do is to receive him by faith to receive the forgiveness that comes as a result of his work by faith. And the difficulty here, and where this gets really murky and muddy, is that the moment that any kind of human merit or any kind of works starts to get introduced into this perfect equation, then it is no longer grace. Because under grace, everything depends on God and not on men. That's why Paul talks, he says it's the gift of God. So if there's any conditions that are suddenly attached to that, any strings that suddenly come with that, anything we need to do to work for that, then it's no longer a gift. Now it's just a paycheck. And yet our salvation is a gift. It's not earned. It's not deserved. And this was the message that Paul was preaching. And so when they attacked this message, they attacked the foundation of Paul's entire ministry. And more importantly, they attacked that special revelation that Paul had received from Jesus. They called into question the fundamental question of how a person is saved. And that is the most important question that any person could ever ask. Now, there are a number of side issues that we can point to and we can see in our Christian faith, like what will happen in the end times or how should the church be governed or what about the gifts of the spirit or the roles in ministry or what about the method for baptism. But this was not a side issue. This had to do with salvation itself. It had to do with how an individual was made right with God. It wasn't an issue there where there could be any kind of a disagreement with one side saying that it was important to keep the law and the other side somehow believing that it wasn't important. This was an issue that went right to the core 
of Christianity, and it had to be addressed. It had to even be contended for. So we see in verse 2, these men had come up there from Jerusalem, and it says, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Now, I love the way that Luke words this, because if there was no small dissension and dispute over this issue, then what that means is that there was a big dissension and dispute over this issue. And here Paul and Barnabas are showing the true hearts of the shepherds that they were over the church to confront and to really contend with those who insisted on bringing these false doctrines into the church. And then to go a step further and to work hard to root it out and to just pull it up right from the root. Because notice here where Luke says that after they had disputed with these men in Antioch who had come up, they had come down from Jerusalem, it says that then they determined that Paul and Barnabas should go up to Jerusalem to settle things once and for all with the apostles and the elders. And I don't think that we should think that the sense here is that Paul was in any way looking for some kind of a ruling from the other apostles and the elders, but more so the fact that this false teaching had originated from there and it needed to be dealt with right there once and for all. And actually, if we look to Paul's letter to the Galatians, he tells us that he was clearly commanded by God to go to Jerusalem over this issue. In Galatians chapter 2, which describes this very same event that we're studying this morning, Paul says that I went up by revelation and I communicated to them that the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. Literally, it means I went up in obedience to or I went up guided by this divine revelation because it was God who wanted Paul to go and affirm once and for all with these Jerusalem church leaders, both the place of the Gentiles and the grace of God as the basis for salvation. If there's anything worth contending for, it's the grace of God, because the grace of God changes everything. If you've not read it, you should. But in in Pastor Chuck's book, Why Grace Changes Everything, he writes this. He says that grace transforms desolate and bleak plains into rich green pastures. It changes grit-your-teeth duty into loving, enthusiastic service. It exchanges the tears and guilt of our own failed efforts for the eternal thrill and laughter of freely offered pleasures at the right hand of God. He says, grace changes everything. And we can just imagine how Satan wanted to fully take advantage of this critical situation. Not only did he want this false doctrine of righteousness by works to continue to succeed, but even if he couldn't do that, he wanted a costly, bitter, doctrinal war which would completely split and sour this early church. 
And so this may be the greatest threat to the work of the gospel that we've seen so far in the book of Acts, and we have seen a few so far. Look what it says in verse 3. It says, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they'd come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. So everywhere they went, all along their route, here Paul and Barnabas on their way to Jerusalem, they found plenty of other Christians who would rejoice with them in the way that God was working amongst the Gentiles. And what a contrast. When the legalizers came into town, there was this heaviness. And yet when Paul and Barnabas passed through, there was a great joy because that's what the gospel of grace brings. It brings joy. Because we have the privilege, based on that, of telling people that their sins are forgiven, that they don't have to be better, that they don't have to try harder. We can tell them that the price has been paid and the work is complete and we can bring that same joy wherever it is we go because the gospel is such good news for everyone after all that's why it's called the gospel right the good news so there in jerusalem we see that even the apostles and the the elders received them with joy but it says in verse 5 that some of the sect of the pharisees who believed rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So here are our old friends, the Pharisees. Now we remember them, of course, as those legalists who had caused so much trouble for Jesus. But now here we find that some of them, although they had become believers in Jesus, but they were still really struggling to let go of their legalistic ways. Remember, the Pharisees were the group that they were respected for this high regard that they had for the law, their desire to obey the law in the smallest things. If, as a Pharisee, you believed anything, you believed that you could be justified before God by keeping the law. So for a Pharisee, to really become a Christian, they would need to do more than simply acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. They would need to really stop trying to justify themselves by keeping the law. They would need to fully accept the work of Jesus as the basis of their justification. And that was a huge step. Remember last week we saw in Lystra, Remember, Paul and Barnabas couldn't allow those pagans to just add Jesus to this pantheon of Roman gods that they had. And instead, they told them that it was important that they turn from their vain gods to the true and living God. And in effect, even for these Pharisees who had already become Christians, they still needed to do the very same thing. They had to turn from all of their efforts to, to earn their way to God or their efforts to find favor with God by keeping the law. And they needed to turn to looking only to Jesus for those things. Because you can't just add Jesus on 
and say that, you know, somehow Jesus is going to help me to justify myself by keeping the law. You can't do that. And yet, so many of us are operating as though we can. But the truth is, we can never do enough to justify ourselves or to cleanse our sin or to earn God's favor. Our efforts are nothing in that regard. And there's a very, very familiar story from years ago that there was a multimillionaire who was asked the reason for his wealth. And his response was that as a, a young man, when he was first married, he said that they were dirt poor. And those were very tough times. But he was energetic, and he said he took his last nickel and he bought an apple. And he spent the night polishing it until it became so shiny that it was this thing of beauty. And then, you know, the next day he took and he sold that apple on the street that he'd bought for a nickel. He sold it now for a dime. And then he took that dime and he bought two more apples and he spent the night polishing those apples. And then the next day he sold those two apples for 20 cents. And then he took that 20 cents and he bought four apples and he polished those until finally he sold those for 40 cents. He took the 40 cents, he bought eight more apples. He spent the night polishing those, he sold those. He said, at that point I had a dollar sixty. He says, then my wife's dad died and he left us a million dollars. And yet, isn't that just like us? Because what we want to say is we want to say that I'm rich in the things of God because of all of my hard work. I'm rich in the things of God because of all my fasting and because of all of my prayer and because of all of my devotion and my sacrifice. I'm rich in the things of God because of all of these apples that I have been polishing. But in reality, we are only rich because Jesus died and he opened up that floodgate of grace to pour down upon us. And so this issue of the relationship between law and grace is still one of the greatest issues of our faith. And it's an issue that keeps people stuck in their faith. It keeps them unable to really move ahead or to just rest and to abide in Jesus because we're so busy trying to polish apples. And this is one of the things that you'll see in the New Testament. Paul would continue to combat this in most of the letters that he wrote to many of the churches that he established. Once again, Pastor Chuck writes this. He says that all of us are either trying to work and be good enough to please God, or we are believing and trusting God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. At each moment of our lives, we find ourselves on one road or the other. If we're still trying to please God through being good enough, then defeat and frustration will be our lot. If we have trusted in God's grace to transform us and form Christ within us, we will enjoy life and peace. So this was an issue that needed to be sorted out. And so to sort this out here at the outset, amongst all of these early church leaders, we see that they convened what we now refer to as the Council of Jerusalem. It was a council to consider this issue. It says in verse 6 that the apostles and the elders 
came together to consider this matter. Now, if some of you, if some of you use the NASB translation, I love the way that it renders this verse because it says that the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And I think I like that because I think it better conveys the hearts of the men who were there because I don't think that we would that we should think that they came together in order somehow to to render a decision on this issue but they came together to seek the heart of God about this issue to really look for him look to him for clarification on this very critical matter is the work of Jesus enough to save those who really trust in him or do we have to add to that work of Jesus in order to really be made right with God? And so they gathered together to gain this understanding. Look at verse 7. It says that when there had been much dispute, so just stop right there for a minute with me, that word dispute can mean inquiry or debate or questioning or controversies or even arguments. And whichever word we choose to use, notice that Luke tells us that there was much of it. And I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but we can just envision this room full of these Middle Eastern Jewish men, right, who were each very passionate for his own perspective. They were each very anxious to share their personal convictions on this controversial, critical issue until finally said there had been much dispute. Look what it says in the rest of verse 7. It says that then Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, verse 8, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. And I love Peter here. He says, friends, he says, this issue that we're debating here has actually already been decided. And it was decided about 10 years ago, back in the house of Cornelius. Because he reminds them of his own experience and the way that God had worked in the past in those Gentile believers, the way that he'd given them the spirit as an evidence of that salvation that had happened in their hearts. And Peter points out the issue of whether or not to accept the Gentiles had been settled then. It had been settled there because God had already accepted them and he did it purely on the basis of their faith. He didn't do it because they had been circumcised. He didn't do it because they had kept the law of Moses. He said that the heart is purified by faith, not by the keeping of the law. And if the heart is purified by faith, then there's no need for it to be purified by submitting to any of those ceremonies that are found in the law of Moses. And I think this is a great word for us today as Christians, because Christians are not only saved by faith, but we're also purified by faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul would write this, that by grace you've been saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then to the Corinthians, he would say later in 2 Corinthians 5, he said that we walk by faith and not by sight. So it's by faith that we grow as Christians in the grace of God. And we do it completely free from the law of God. It's our faith that liberates us from that. And this, this freedom from the law is the subject of the whole of that letter to the Galatians. Paul, in that letter, he writes about this other gospel, right? The gospel of the law, which he says is completely contrary to the true gospel which the apostles were preaching. He said that that other gospel, the gospel of the law, he says is not another gospel at all. And yet it's this gospel, right? That's the one that these Judaizers were preaching. Paul says it's a false gospel. It's a gospel that actually keeps Christians in bondage to the spirit of the law, trying to always please God by keeping all of these rules. And the danger is what can happen is that very well-meaning, very sincere Christians who have a great desire to grow in holiness, those are the Christians who stand at the greatest risk of becoming legalistic instead of living by the leading of the Spirit. And so often pastors or other church leaders, they become afraid that if they preach too much on grace, then the people are just going to go out and live any old way they want and just live in sin. And so as leaders or even just as individual believers, what happens is we can start to very subtly introduce a few rules, which we are convinced are going to help us in our quest for holiness. They're rules that aren't necessarily found explicitly in God's word, and yet we think that they're going to help us to control ourselves. Or maybe they're going to help us to help others to control themselves. But that's not God's way. Because all that does is bring people into bondage. That's the real difference between living under the law and living under grace. All the law can do is to keep someone clean externally. I once heard the law for us now is sort of like 10 chains attached to a pig. Okay, if you clean up a pig, put 10 chains around him, and then try to lead him through this filthy, muddy area, but you're guiding him along each way with the chains, it will end up on the other side perfectly clean, clean as long as you keep controlling it with the chains you're tugging a little bit this way with that chain and you're tugging a little bit that way with that chain every single time the pig wants to go back and wallow in the mud yet when it's done we could claim that the pig is clean and yet the truth is they only stayed clean because they were restrained by the chains and any believer who's kept pure because of the restraints of the rules is a believer who's living under the law. And that kind of a believer is only going to be clean on the outside, only going to be clean externally. Inside, in the heart, well, they're still going to be kind of like that unchanged pig. Now, on the other hand, 
if we were to send a cat through that very same stretch of mud, the cat will always come out clean without any chains because the cat is just going to avoid anything that's dirty. And that's the difference between a believer who's under the law and one who's under grace because it's that cat's inward nature that makes it different from the pig. See, it's God's grace received by faith that makes us partakers of what Paul talks about is the divine nature. That's the thing that purifies our hearts. Church, God doesn't want to control us with chains. He wants to change our hearts and our nature within. That's what he demonstrated with the Gentiles. And I think the thing that I love most about what Peter says here is that it's not at all based on what he thought, but it was based entirely on what he had witnessed that God had done. And then it's based on those things that he had seen the Lord do. Now Peter's going to come and offer a conclusion for us in verse 10. He says, now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So in a sense, Peter continues kind of this historical defense. He reminds them that from the beginning to the end, Israel itself couldn't bear up under the heavy yoke of the law. And of course, remember, they broke it right as they had even received it. Remember that whole at the base of Mount Sinai and that whole golden calf debacle. And then we look at any moment out of their history and we see that they virtually always just continued to break it. And it would be later in that same letter to the Galatians that Paul would explain. He would say that the law was our tutor or it was our teacher. It was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith but after faith has come we are no longer under a tutor you see the law never intended at all to justify anyone but the intent of the law was to show them that they were incapable of keeping it, that they were incapable of justifying themselves. The law was intended to show them their need for God's grace, which would come to them by faith. And this is precisely what Peter says here. He says that it's through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we shall be saved. And notice he says it was going to happen for the Jews, just like it happened for the Gentiles. This is interesting because Peter didn't say what we would expect him to say. He didn't say that they shall be saved the way that we are saved. He said that we shall be saved in the way that they are saved. And I think that's significant because what Peter's basically saying here is, hey, we believe that it's through the grace of the Lord Jesus that even we Jews... Even we Jews who are so entangled in this legalism that even we can be free to enjoy salvation by grace just like the Gentiles are doing. So can I encourage 
every one of us listening today that you are free to enjoy salvation by grace. That you need not stay tangled up in some sort of legalism you've created, but that you can simply rest in the work that Jesus has already done on your behalf. And I know that as many times as we hear it, it's a reality theologically that is still so very difficult for us to grasp personally. And it was for them too. Look what we read next. Look at just the first few words of verse 12. It says that then the multitude kept silent. So here, Peter's perspective on God's grace, his perspective on the way that it was working in the, in the Gentiles, and particularly his perspective on the way that it would work then in the Jews, it left this room speechless. It left them silent. All of these men who had so much to say were suddenly unable to resist the wisdom or the voice of the Spirit that was speaking through Peter. And I'm not sure if you've ever been in a similar similar situation. Maybe you've been gathered together with a group of believers and you're seeking after the heart of the Lord on an issue. Maybe it's for a ministry you're involved in, or maybe it's for a, some sort of a dispute that you're involved in and trying to resolve, where there's been much discussion and much debate and maybe even tempers are rising. And then there comes that moment where someone shares something that just leaves the room speechless. Because there's just sort of this sense, there's a, a holy recognition that it was the Lord who had just spoken and that he has now broken through the confusion. And that's the sense, I think, here, as Peter, the apostle to the Jews, Peter, the apostle of the circumcision, had made such a clear case for God's grace. Right? In verse 12, again, the multitude kept silent. Then it says, they listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Peter had talked about what God had done in the past. And here now, Paul and Barnabas, they're reporting the things that God was doing in the present. And with just one sentence, Luke summarizes everything that we just read in chapters 13 and 14. And he points out, though, that the emphasis of what Paul and Barnabas shared was on the many miracles and the wonders that the Lord had done, because those would have been the things that would have been seen as proof that God was working with them. Here, they had preached grace, not law, and God had honored that message by confirming it with signs and wonders. Paul and Barnabas simply confirmed Peter's previous point that God is the one who accepted the Gentiles, and so why shouldn't we as well? And I think it's interesting to note that Paul especially, whom we know was never at a loss for words, that Paul doesn't say more here, because I just truly get the sense that he knew that the Spirit had spoken. He knew that the, the Spirit would continue to speak, even through a very unlikely person. Look at what it says in verse 13. It says that after they, or Paul and Barnabas, after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, 
listen to me. Now, there's a number of different Jameses in the Bible. This James is not the Apostle James because we remember he was martyred back in chapter 12. But this was James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jude. James, the author of the book of James, who was also the recognized leader at the time of the church in Jerusalem. He was often referred to as James the Just because he was so very righteous. He was often called James the Camel Need because he spent so much time kneeling in prayer. He also, however, was a legalist. James had very strong leanings toward the law. He was still a rigorous observer of the law. If you look at the book of James, there are at least 10 different references to the law in his letter. And so his summation, which is about to come, would have likely been very much anticipated, would have been very welcome probably by that legalistic side of this discussion and debate. And yet watch what it is that he says. He says, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, he uses Peter's Jewish name. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will, will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. And then James says in verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, I just have this picture in my mind as I kind of play this movie out that if the room could have gotten more silent than silent, it would have been just at this point. Because here James offers his final word that the Gentiles should be welcomed in based on the grace that God was extending to them. And notice, Peter had appealed to the way that God had worked in the Gentiles in the past. Paul and Barnabas had reviewed all the work that God was doing amongst the Gentiles in the present. And here James focuses on God's prophetic work with the Gentiles in the future, just as was predicted in God's word. He quotes from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, which in context show us that the prophet is actually describing all of the events that are going to happen in the end times, during the millennium, when Christ is going to sit upon the throne of David and when God will fully and finally bless his people abundantly and also bless the Gentiles through the Jewish people. But what we note is that James carefully he did not say that Amos 9 was fulfilled here by the Gentiles that were coming into the church. He simply asserted that the things that were happening in the church were in full agreement with all of those things that all of the Old Testament prophets had said would happen. That this was just a working out of God's plan 
the way he had already revealed it in his word. And what's most important to see about what James does here is that James judged this new work that God seemed to be doing in the very same way that any work of God should be evaluated. And that's that James looked to what was written. He looked to the Bible. And so for this council, that would be an outside authority that would really have the last word in this debate. And that outside authority was the word of God. And in the same way for us this morning, we need to let God's word be the outside authority to settle things in our lives as well, especially as it relates to this very elusive issue of trying to live according to the law or simply trusting and resting and living according to the grace of God. So here, James has spoken. The question has been answered. The heart of God, I think, has been revealed. And we will see James concludes verses 20 and 21 with some encouragement that they could then offer to these new Gentile believers. Again, in verse 19, he says, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read now in the synagogues every Sabbath. Okay, now we read those two verses and we scratch our heads and we say, wait a minute. <laughs> James first says that we shouldn't trouble the Gentiles with the law, but then he throws out this list of crazy do's and don'ts that sound an awful lot like the law. So what's the deal here? Well, trust me, there is a perfectly good explanation for all of this, and we will get to it next week. So you'll have to tune in then, because next week we're going to consider an equally great controversy that still exists within our Christian faith. But for this morning, we can just breathe, right? We can rest in God's grace, and isn't that isn't that enough for us this morning? There's no more apple polishing. There's no more filthy pigs. And unless this is your very first time tuning in, I'm afraid you may be thinking to yourself all morning, you know, I think we've heard this message before. And doesn't this guy talk about anything else besides God's grace? Well, I sure hope not. I sure hope not. And in fact, I will be bold and I will say this. If you are tired of hearing all about how great God's grace is, then you should probably tune in somewhere else from now on. Or maybe set your navigation to another church once we get back to having church. Because here at Calvary Mountain View, we are going to continue to glory in God's grace. And we're going to continue to cultivate a real culture of grace because that is the game changer. 
That's the thing that we've all been searching for, and it's the only way forward for each and every one of us as individual believers. Well, just one more quote from Pastor Chuck's book. I'm going to let him have the final word to us this morning. He writes this. He says that God will allow us to follow self-help, self-improvement programs and will, until we've tried them all, until we finally come to the honest confession, I can't do it. I can't be righteous in my own strength. And it is then when we admit our utter powerlessness that we find hope. For it is then when the Lord intervenes to do a work that we could not do for ourselves. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, and we thank you first, and we thank you foremost, Lord, for your grace. It's the starting point, Lord. It's the ending point, Lord. It, it's the start and the finish line of our entire Christian walk. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give each one of us this morning just a newfound sense of your grace as it operates in our lives. Lord, we pray that through our faith to trust and to rest in you, that your grace would be manifest in us, Lord, in a way that it never has before. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the way that you've so clearly shown these things. Lord, we thank you for the experience of these men, Lord, nearly two thousand years ago, Lord, as, they, as they've wrestled with these questions, they've sought your heart, and Lord, you've recorded every word of it so that we would know it as well. And so we thank you, Lord. We praise you. We rejoice in the things that you're doing. Lord, and we do it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Amen. God bless you guys today. And I just pray that this week that God would truly pour out his grace upon you abundantly in a way that you've never experienced before. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.